0: Welcome to Commercial Real Estate Investing from A to Z, the ultimate guide for real estate investors. I'm your host, Steph Boldrini. We cover everything you need to know from finding and analyzing properties to financing and managing your investments. Tune in every week for experts, insights, and tips so you can make your commercial real estate dreams come true. And in today's episode, we are diving deeper into what is a Cognovit Clause. What are some of the main things that a borrower should be aware of in a loan document for a commercial property? When should you get an attorney involved in your loan documents? And how to avoid potential issues with a retrade coming from your lender? We are chatting with Adam Lustig. He is the head of the real estate group at bilzen Sunberg Law Firm. He has a ton of experience revising loan documents, but not without a disclaimer first. Here we go. The commentary in this podcast does not constitute legal advice. It is intended for informational purposes only, and it is not a substitute for the advice of a qualified attorney who is fully informed as to your particular factual circumstance. Any use or reliance on this interview is at your sole risk. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today on a very fascinating topic that we have not covered yet. First, why don't you tell us a little bit about you?
1: Stephanie, thanks for having me today. I'm the head of the real estate group at Bills & Sundberg, which is a 110 plus attorney law firm based in Miami, Florida. I've been practicing commercial real estate law for 24 years, and my practice consists primarily of representing real estate developers and real estate investment companies in connection with acquisitions, sales, leasing, financing, and development of all property types.
0: I recently learned about a Cognovit Clause. Would you mind sharing with our audience what that is and how can that affect an investor if it is in a loan document, please?
1: Sure. So a Cognovit Clause is a clause in an agreement that authorizes the entry of a judgment against the defaulting party in the event of a default. And I'll, I'll unpack that a little bit. It's also commonly referred to as a confession of judgment. So what that means in the context of a loan is that if if the loan documents contain a cognitive clause, it allows for the lender to file suit against the borrower in, a, in the event of a default and to immediately obtain a judgment without any prior notice to the borrower. Obviously that's potentially a, a major problem for a borrower because they don't receive notice of default. They don't receive an opportunity to cure and they don't have the right to raise any defenses or effectively to have their day in court.
0: So, why would a bank want to put that clause on the documents? Because banks typically don't want to hold and take back property. So, it sounds a bit counterintuitive.
1: Well, I think it really gives the bank leverage upon a default, right? So, rather than have to give notice and an opportunity to cure, Or if the borrower does default, the bank can avoid a long drawn out foreclosure process that in some states can take six months to a year, maybe even longer, particularly if the borrower wants to fight and raise all sorts of defenses. So it really allows the lender to very quickly run to the court and get the entry of a judgment against the borrower without, you know, without going through a long process in the court's
0: And I assume that is always negotiable as a borrower when we get the loan documents, correct?
1: It's definitely negotiable. I would also tell you in my experience that it's only available in a handful of states. Um, I've actually only seen it in Pennsylvania where it is quite common and difficult in my experience to negotiate it out, but certainly it's something that can be uh, negotiated.
0: Okay. Okay. Glad to hear you only saw in Pennsylvania. I believe in some states, it's actually not allowed. Is that correct?
1: In most states, it's not allowed.
0: Okay. So let's move on to the entirety of a loan document. What are some of the main things that a borrower for a commercial property should be aware of with regards to those documents?
1: Most commercial real estate loans are non-recourse loans, which means that in the event the borrower defaults, the lender's recourse is to foreclose on the property. And if the value of the property is the amount of the judgment, the lender does not have the right to go after the borrower personally for the deficiency. However, lenders under non-recourse loans typically require what are referred to as bad boy guarantees or non-recourse carve-out guarantees, and principals who are signing those guarantees really need to be aware of the circumstances under which they could have personal liability. And, you know, I would say that early in my career, bad boy guarantees were limited to truly bad acts like fraud and material misrepresentation, misappropriating funds, bankruptcy, and similar, you know, bad acts. Today, bad boy guarantees have grown in length. The list of bad boy acts is much, much longer. And many of those things do not necessarily result from a bad act of the borrower. They could be things just like a change in economic economic circumstances, more macroeconomic things that could trigger liability. So you really do have to be careful in negotiating the bad boy guarantee and those bad acts, because they trigger personal liability to the principals who are signing them.
0: That makes sense. Can you give us a few more examples of what a bad boy act could be?
1: Yeah. So, you know, today I, I mentioned that they've become much more extensive. You know, I see things like failure to pay real estate taxes and failure to pay insurance. And, you know, while on its face, that doesn't sound so unreasonable that the lender would want to make sure that real estate taxes are paid and insurance is paid. It, it really goes to what is the nature of the loan? The loan's intended to be non recourse, and the property doesn't generate sufficient rents to pay the real estate taxes and to pay the insurance. Should that require the principals, the investors, to come out of pocket and pay for that shortfall? and? Truly with a non-recourse loan, the answer to that should be no. And so that's one of the things that I do negotiate with lenders, and I'm often successful getting them to agree that to the extent the cash flow from the property is sufficient to pay those taxes and insurance, then they do have to be paid and the guarantors would be guaranteeing them. But if the if the cash flow from the property is not sufficient, they would not be on the hook for them.
0: When you started your career, how long were these documents and how long are they now?
1: <laughs> uh, that's a good question. Um, the length varies, I guess what I would say, because there's so much boilerplate in those documents that it's really the length of the list of bad boy acts that <laughs> are most important. So that list early in my career was, would certainly fit on one page. And I would say today it could go on for two, three, four pages or, or more.
0: Well, I I would love to put some bad boy clauses for the banks themselves because it seems like they have been misbehaving lately. Can you share some horror stories with regards to lending documents that someone may not have passed by an attorney and then gotten into trouble later? Someone could have negotiated and they did not.
1: Sure. So... I don't have a horror story of someone who didn't use an attorney to review loan documents, but I have had a number of clients over the years come to me who used attorneys without sufficient expertise in negotiating the loan documents. And then when they run into trouble and the loan is in default or it's about to go in default, they ask for advice on what to do. That's obviously a little bit late uh, at that point. And I do the best I can to help them work through the issues with the lender but they often have significant exposure and little to no leverage. And not surprisingly, that, that conversation typically ends with the client saying, I'm going to just <laughs> hire you the next time.
0: <laughs> That's great. So how long does it typically take from the time that you receive the document and how, how much back and forth is there with regards to negotiating the document?
1: Yeah, sure. So in most cases, loan documents can be negotiated in less than 30 days. In, in a typical acquisition, you have a 30-day due diligence period and then a 30-day period after that to close the transaction. And so it's quite common that the loan document negotiation really doesn't start until after due diligence and those documents get negotiated within that 30-day window prior to closing. So it's certainly something that can be done within two, three, four weeks.
0: Do you recommend investors applying with at least two different lenders? And the reason I ask this is because it has happened to me and many other people that I know that the lender that sent a term sheet and got everything approved when it came the week of closing, they added a new clause there or a new requirement out of the blue. Have you seen that? Uh, Do you recommend people applying with more than one lender
1: Well, I I think it's certainly important to talk to more than one lender and to get uh, term sheets from more than one lender. And oftentimes to work with a mortgage broker who has contacts with a number of lenders can go to the market with your potential loan transaction and come up with a list of the potential uh, sources for the financing. So I do think there's a lot of value in using good mortgage brokers and having them help you go to the market, particularly on a complex transaction. But regardless, I would say there's a benefit to talking to multiple lenders to getting multiple you know bids, so to speak, so that you can get a feel for the market and make sure that you get the best possible terms. Some lenders, in their commitment letters or term sheets, do require exclusivity, and so. In that case, there could be penalties if you decide to go with another lender. Uh, That's something to be aware of when you're negotiating a term sheet or an application or or a commitment letter, um, which might tie your hands in being able to deal with multiple lenders. But certainly on the front end, it makes sense to do so. And until you have a commitment from that lender, it makes sense to keep your options open so that if the lender walks away or retrades you, that you have um, a plan B. And yes, I have seen lenders retrade at the last minute. Obviously, this is you know a relationship business and relationships are important. So to the extent that you're dealing with you know, a reputable lender, someone that you have a relationship with, or somebody that your you know, mortgage broker or other professionals have a relationship with, I think that can help, you know, minimize some of that, you know, risk of just getting retraded at the end by someone that you've never dealt with before but yes, it does happen. Um, And keeping your options open uh, is important, particularly when you're dealing with a transaction that might have a deadline, or if you're under contract to purchase a property, you might have a non-refundable deposit that's up and a hard closing date. And so, you know, the timing can be tight and the dates are are really important. And the implications of not being able to close by the closing date, you know, are usually forfeiting that deposit.
0: Exactly. So, do you recommend us negotiating on the commitment letter that they're not going to change or require absolutely anything else after the commitment letter is signed to avoid this problem?
1: Well, I think you're unlikely to be able to get that. I do recommend that clients get attorneys involved at the term sheet or commitment letter stage. I think that's really important. A lot of clients don't think to do that. They don't necessarily want to incur Legal fees before they know whether they have a deal with the lender. Yes, it's gonna cost a little bit more, but it can save you a lot of heartache down the road. You know, once the client has agreed to something in a commitment letter or term sheet, it's much harder to negotiate it weeks down the road when you get the first draft of the loan documents and you have a you know a hard closing date and only a couple of weeks to get the deal done. So that that is one thing I would certainly recommend is getting an attorney involved at the beginning and having them help you it's only a couple of hours worth of time to try to negotiate uh, the term sheet or commitment letter and advise you of some of those risks and traps on the front end and do the best they can to help you negotiate them you know as i said at the outset though it's going to be quite difficult to get the lender to agree they're not going to make any changes because usually at the term sheet or commitment or application stage they haven't gone through all their underwriting they don't have an appraisal yet there's a whole list of requirements. They have to be satisfied. I mean, At the end of the day, if the lender doesn't want to make the loan, they will find a way not to make the loan. And as a borrower, you don't have much recourse there.
0: So besides having an attorney at that commitment le- letter stage, how how do we avoid this this problem of them putting extra requirements at the end? Well, is it just based
1: on relationships? It certainly goes back to relationships. That obviously helps. Having professionals involved, including mortgage brokers that help feed business to those lenders, clearly Mm -hmm. helps, right? Keep them honest and, and kind of walking a straight line. And most of the lenders that I've seen that come back with additional requirements at the end are not doing it to retrade the deal. They're doing it because their underwriting and due diligence has uncovered issues that have to be addressed. So that's much more often the case when there's a change in the terms, is when a lender completes their underwriting, it's oh well we reviewed the leases and there's this issue. This tenant has a right to terminate early, so we can't really count it as a 10-year lease if they can terminate after three years, right? And so we have to underwrite it a little differently, or the appraisal came back with something, or we had a property condition report done and it turns out that the roof needs to be replaced and that's got to go into a reserve. And so that's more typically what I see, not just kind of a blatant retrade at the end because the lender thinks they can mm-hmm. do it because they have leverage.
0: I mean, there, might, there are
1: cer- certainly some unscrupulous ones out there, but it goes back to kind of knowing who you're doing business with and having appropriate you know, relationships and introductions to good people.
0: Definitely. Well, is there anything else that you think is important for our audience to know with regards to these loan documents that they really should be mindful of?
1: Well, there's a whole lot of (laughs) provisions, I think, in loan documents. Sometimes these loan agreements can be 100 pages, 200 pages. Um, (laughs) And, you know, so obviously it's important to make sure uh, that you have a qualified attorney helping you in reviewing those loan documents so they can point out in the hundred or two hundred page document, you know, the issues that you really need to be concerned about. So that's clearly one thing. Another thing that I'll that I'll mention that I've seen much more recently, I've seen term sheets or commitment letters where the lenders requiring not just a mortgage on the property, as their collateral, but also a pledge of all of the ownership interests in, in the borrower. And I've seen that where clients have agreed to that in a term sheet or commitment letter, signed it before engaging you know, counsel, probably not really understanding what it means. And then again, it's one of those situations where once they've agreed to it, it's really hard when you get to the loan documents to try to undo it. But that is one of those traps for the unwary and briefly, the difference there and what it means is that with a, a mortgage, in most states, you have to go through the courts. As I mentioned earlier, that foreclosure process can take six to 12 months, potentially even longer. With a pledge of equity, the lender can do what's called a UCC Article 9 foreclosure, which typically only requires 10 days notice to the borrower before a public or private sale of the property is held and they don't have to go through the courts at all and so it's wow. kind of along the lines of what you mentioned earlier about the cognitive clause which is you know it's a method for a lender to very quickly foreclose on the collateral and if of course if they have a pledge of all of your equity then if they foreclose on that pledge they now own 100 percent of the borrower right so they now own the wow. property indirectly so that's just one of those things that I mention as, you know, I guess food for thought and something to be careful of when, you know, when you're negotiating loan documents. And, and it's definitely one of those things that if you see it in the term sheet or commitment letter, that's the best time to push back on it. The lender might have a reason why they need it um, or why they have to have it, but it's important to understand what it, what it means and to try to negotiate it away on the front end.
0: Well, you guys, Adam, just gave you all of your entire equity moving forward for all of your future deals here, uh, just with this tip. So (laughs) thank you, Adam, for sharing this very important tip. I appreciate the fact that an attorney is very straightforward, which is what uh, we all want. Thank you so much for joining us today. How can our listeners get in touch with you?
1: My pleasure to be here, Stephanie. Uh, My firm's website is com And my email address is lustig A-L-U-S-T-I-G, at bilzin.com.
0: And as always, all of these links will be under show notes. Adam, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure, Stephanie.
0: And if you have not signed up for the Advanced Real Estate Investing Summit yet, it is less than two months away, you're going to get to hear from Ken McElroy, Neil Bawa, Mark Moss, David Green, and several other truly incredible speakers. And we really want to provide the very best conference for you guys to really get something out of it for yourselves. The website is aresummit.com. I really look forward to seeing you all on October 19th at night and 20th all day. And I will see you next time.